Thank you, ladies. Mark chapter 5 in your Bibles. Mark chapter 5. We've been continuing our series that we've called His Story from the Gospel of Mark. One of the Gospels that actually, interestingly enough, does not share about the birth of Christ and jumps right into his ministry, but there's a reason for that. We'll even see that today. We're in Mark chapter 5. As we continue this series, we're going to be picking up our reading right away, actually, beginning in verse 35 of Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Let's pick up our reading as we begin this message in verse 35 of Mark 5. It says, While he yet spake, There came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entered into where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand, and said unto her, Talitha kumai, which is, being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Now as we look at this story, there are certainly many truths that emerge from this story. But first and foremost, and perhaps chiefly, is that Jesus is more than able to handle any and every situation that he steps into. No matter how difficult and desperate the plight, Jesus is more than able to be the conquering hero of the story. No trial is too difficult for Jesus. No storm, as we've seen in chapter 4, is too dark. Certainly no trauma is too deep. But that the Lord Jesus can enter in and is able to be our Savior. This is certainly the mind-boggling truth that is seen throughout all of the pages of Scripture. God himself would say to Abraham, is anything too difficult for the Lord? A rhetorical question which should come forth as answered, no, nothing is too difficult. Nothing is too difficult for God. In fact, Job came to this realization. We went through the book of Job, you'll remember, and towards the end of his book, Job would come to this knowledge and say, I know that you can do all things. Certainly, this was Job's truth that was his bulwark through great trial. And Job is not alone. Jeremiah the prophet would declare, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made heavens and earth. And by your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Now we're in the Christmas spirit. We've sung Christmas songs. You'll remember in Luke chapter 2, or Luke chapter 1 rather, when the angel comes to Mary and tells her that she is with child. And Mary is startled by such a proclamation. And she asks and says unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And you remember the angel's reply? In the very next verse, the angel replies, For with God, nothing will be impossible. In fact, Jesus himself said to his disciples, and it was recorded again in Luke's gospel, when after the angel, he says in Luke 18, verse 27, What is impossible with man 
is possible with God. I show you a picture of a children's book that I think every parent and grandparent has read. You've probably all read The Little Engine That Could, have you not? <laughs> now, there are certainly the story of that, I guess, is that uh, no matter your plight, you can do it, right? And the little engine that could continues up the mountain saying the same phrase over and over. I think you could say it, right? I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And there's the plight of determination that I think they're trying to convey to the child that I think I can, you should try to do it. Now, that is, a, I think, a good, noble thing to teach your kids to try things. But I think as you mature and you grow into adulthood, you become to realize this one truth. I know I can't. I know I can't. <laughs> and there's certainly a lot of things that come to that that you come to and you realize, you know, I, I just can't do that. And there are multitudinous things that I just can't accomplish. Now, this is the message that comes through loud and clear in the account in the earthly ministry of Jesus. May everyone in this room be fully persuaded in their hearts that nothing is too hard for God. Amen. This is what Jesus is saying. And by the way, in the Gospel of Mark, we learn that Jesus is accessible. Jesus is available. Jesus is approachable. But most clearly now in chapter 5, Jesus is able. Jesus is able to do far more abundantly. Jesus is able to answer our most desperate prayers, friends. Jesus is most able to reach our most hardened loved ones. Jesus is able to turn defeat into victory. And that is the primary message that emerges from the text of Scripture and screams to every one of us today. You have a master who is more than able to be victorious in every situation he steps into. So let that be an encouragement, discouraged spouse, disheartened single, demoralized servant, disappointed senior, deflated saint. No situation is too far gone, but that this Jesus is fully able to step into it, command it, and change it. As we pick up this account in verse 45 of Mark 5, we begin to look at the larger narrative that began, and we began to expound last week beginning in verse 21 of this same chapter. In verse 21, we read how Jesus has crossed back across the Sea of Galilee and returned to the western shore. And as he returned there, you'll remember that a great swall of people have come, and they have heard of the stories of Jesus. Many of them have perhaps even seen some of these miracles. And now there's a great huge crowd pressing towards Jesus. And in verse 22, we read, the crowds were very large around him, but there was a man who is pushing his way through the crowd. And it says in verse 22, there came out of the rulers of the synagogues, Jairus, some commentators call him Jairus, some call him Jairus. There's a kind of a debate about how to pronounce his name. We'll find out when we get to heaven and ask him. Jairus will call him by name. And Jairus pushes his way through the crowd until he fought his way to the fi- and fell at the feet of Jesus in verse 23. And it says, and implored him earnestly, Jairus did, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and alive. And you'll remember that Jesus immediately goes with this man. And he is making his way through this massive crowd. And as he's making his way through the throng... There in that story, as he's walking with Jairus to go, I don't imagine even walking, at least if they're walking, it's a brisk pace. There you find that another comes 
who has an issue of blood for 12 years. She's also pushing through the crowd. And unlike this wealthy man by name, ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, the crowd isn't seemingly parting ways for her. She has to push her way to get there. And she pushes her way to get to Christ, and she touches the hem of his garment, believing that if she touches the hem of the garment of Christ, she will be healed. And by the way, Jesus can do that and does. And she comes in, and Jesus says, who touched me? To which the disciples reply, what are you talking about? There's a huge crowd, but there's a lesson to be learned there. He wants them to find out he can do this. And she comes from behind, and it says, daughter, and immediately she's healed, by the way. It says in verse 34, he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed from your disease. That's verse 34. And we pick up our story and our reading together in verse 35. And we do so on purpose because, number one, Jesus is there when you are devastated. And I want you to know in verse 34 the devastating report Things have gone from bad, my daughter's about to die, to worse, my daughter is dead. But notice verse 35. While he was yet speaking. There is no break in the action from verse 34 to verse 35. This is simultaneously. While the words of healing are being declared to the woman with the issue of blood, at the same time, there comes a report of startling news. Verse 35, there comes from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Friend, could there be any more devastating report for a father to receive? One of his own children, while still in her youth, is dead. And how sad it is when any parent outlives their children. Being a man just like the rest of us, Jairus is no doubt devastated. All the years of laughter and joy are now taken from this father's arms in a moment. And all the hopes of her future have now been removed from him. And in the youth of her life, she has been cut down like a flower in full blossom. And then the friend says in verse 35, why trouble the teacher any further? The figure Jesus is beyond the ability to help. We surmise that he could have healed her in her sickness, but now she's dead. Don't worry about it. Don't talk to him anymore. And this devastating report is so representative of the fact that life is full of devastating reports. There's not one of us who does not receive this phone call or this email or this personal word of death, defeat, and disappointment. In fact, even Job would say, man is, born, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. As inevitably as the sparks of your fire pit fly up towards the sky, so equally inevitable is the trouble that will come into your life. You are that kind of person. We all are. In fact, Job would say in 14 verse 1, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. We are all subject to this. Just because you are a Christian does not mean you will not be subject to devastating reports. And what will you do when that report comes? Because they can either make us or break us. They can either drive us closer to the Lord or away from Him. 
But the fact is that they are part and parcel to life. And what such devastating reports come to us, we must be reminded and know that no one escapes this kind of devastation. That's what life is. They are out there and they are coming. It is not a matter of if devastation will come. It is a matter of when devastation will come. And when these devastating reports of life come, do not make the wrong diagnosis that there is something wrong with God. And it does not necessarily mean there is something wrong with you either. You need to be reminded that every son born of woman is destined for turmoil and trouble. J.C. Ryle, the great English expositor of the 19th century, writes at this point in his commentary on this book, he says, let us learn from these verses that rank, referring to the high rank of Jairus, places no man beyond the reach of sorrow. It is good for us to be reminded of this. We are all too apt to forget it. We often think and talk as if possession of riches was the great antidote to sorrow. But it is the very extreme of blindness to think so. We have only to look around us and see a hundred proofs to the contrary. Death comes to halls and palaces as well as to cottages. It stands on no ceremony. It tarries for no man's leisure. It will not be kept out by locks and bonds. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this to judgment. And all are going to one place, the grave. We may be sure that there is far more equity in the portions appointed to man than at first appearance. Sickness is the great leveler. It makes no distinction who dies. We all die. And when this difficulty comes, we should never respond as did the friends. Don't bother Jesus anymore. No situation is ever too far gone to trouble the teacher. No trial, no temptus, no trauma, ever too far gone that our Lord is not ready and able to step in. It is when we find ourselves most troubled that we should most trouble the Lord. This is what psalmist would say in Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in your day of trouble. I will rescue you. You will honor me. He would say in Psalm 91, verse 15, He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him. He'll say again in Psalm 106, verse 6, They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them out of their distress. We do not have a fair weather Jesus who only comes to court us when the sun is out. Jesus can and is able to be there for the devastated. But Jesus is also there when you are afraid. Sometimes the hardest part of the trial can be waiting for an answer. And there's certainly an air of concern now expressed. Verse 36, it says, but overhearing what they said. Speaking of Jesus, doesn't he always, by the way, Jesus always overhears what is being said. It has been well said that Jesus is the guest at every dinner table. (laughs) He is the unseen presence in every conversation. Of course Jesus heard this. He is the omniscient one. He knows what they are saying. He also knows what they are thinking for that matter. 
And as they are talking, don't trouble this guy anymore, he responds, though they weren't saying this to him, he heard this, do not fear, only believe. But this is the imperative mood. This is a command. This is a negative command with a positive result. Jairus, in a moment, melted on the inside. You can imagine he is suddenly panic-stricken and filled with fear. Death has come knocking. And Jesus commands him, do not fear. This is easier said than done. But the last two words are the key to the verse. Only believe. You cannot command fear to leave your heart. Get out of here, fear. You have no such control over fear in your heart. Fear can have a death grip upon us. Every one of us is subject to fear. You can't stand here and say, I just won't be afraid. That's not reality. So he says, negatively, don't fear. What do you do positively? Believe. It takes the positive to drive out the negative. It takes faith to displace fear. It takes trust to displace trembling. It takes looking to God to remove looking to our fears. You can't say, I'm just not going to be afraid. You have to say, I'm, I'm going to trust in Jesus. That's the message of Jesus. Only believe. Only put your trust in God. Only have complete confidence in God. So focus on God that you crowd out fear. Has anyone here today ever been so scared that you just can't move? You ever been there? There, there, I was at a camp once. They had a, they have, I think some our teens went to this one in North Carolina. They have like this zip line, and it's over the water, and uh, it's really tall. And uh, there, there's no like harness or anything like that, and uh, you just grab it on. And I'm sure that they've, they've, they've certainly improved all of the safety procedures over the time. So no, no, no reason to be afraid, parents. That's not my point, right? But remember, this, this one person went all the way up there. It wasn't actually at that one. And, and they went up. At that time, once you got up there, they didn't want you to climb back down because they were afraid climbing down was more dangerous than going off the sedge. And this person stood there for, I don't know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, till everybody is cheering them on. You can do it. You can do it. And finally, they did it. But as they stepped off, they also weren't sure they should, which is a bad place to be in, Right? <laughs> And they fell all the way down into the water. Fortunately, it was water. They were okay. But have you ever been there? You're just frozen. There's only one who will undergird us to step in and make a difference in our lives. So many are frozen in fear they cannot be moved to follow Jesus. Jesus can. Jesus is more than able to handle any situation. He is there when you are devastated. He is there when you are afraid. Jesus is there when you are alone. Trials often usher in a wave of aloneness. And with them, that can be quite palpable. It might be the hardest part of a trial at times, is to think you're the only one who knows of your situation. In verse 37 we read, Jesus do something rather unique. It says he allowed no one to follow him in verse 37. Jesus did not want to make a show of this. He is going to perform a miracle, but Jesus was not like one of those modern day faith healer hucksters, right? He's going to perform a miracle, but no one is going to observe this. They didn't get this on tape for TV, by the way. This will be an act of pure kindness just for this family. 
He allowed no one to follow him, except, and it lists, Mark lists who's there with him, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. There was one exception to who could go in, because Jesus is in the process of making men. He is further training and preparing his disciples to one day step in, and these three men are in the inner circle of the twelve, and they will come in because Jesus is going to teach them something. These three men will be the point men when Jesus will go up and ascend into glory. They will be the ones most visible. These men will be the, the primary targets one day of the enemy's arrows. These men, above all, need to have their faith bolstered to see the sovereign Lord and the supernatural authority of God in the quiet moments. To let them know when they are confronted, because they will be, when they feel alone, because they will feel that way, Jesus is there. James would be the first martyr of the faith. We read about that in Acts chapter 12. Peter and John would be drugged before the Sanhedrin and commanded, do not speak his name, Jesus' name, anymore. They would need extra concrete in the foundations of their faith. And so our Lord bids these three men to come along with his family, but he allows no one else to follow. The friends, the extended family, they must all stay on the outside. This verse, by the way, is so much like our Lord. This is who he is. Jesus is never exploiting anyone to follow him. Jesus is never merchandising anyone. Jesus is never seeking to elevate himself in the ministry. Mark highlights this because of his purpose for his book. Mark is going to focus on Jesus being our servant Lord. And here in this passage, just in these verses, he is noting Jesus, the servant Lord, is there when you are alone. He's not there just for the crowd. He is there when you are alone. I highlight this because there's still something for us to learn in this brief but important verse. Don't think God is wasting your potential by keeping you by yourself. There may just be a lesson in the small crowd he still wants you to learn. And Jesus is there when you are overwhelmed because Jesus is more than able to handle any situation he steps into. And Jesus is there when you are overwhelmed. I want you to notice with me the disturbing scene now unfolded. We come to verse 38 and we see the disturbing scene as Jesus, Jairus, and the three disciples arrive. And it's a disturbing one that they find. It says, They come into the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. Now, the word commotion speaks of a state of complete confusion. This is a chaotic ruckus, it is a boisterous disorder. In fact, the word, in the sense, is a scene of total, absolute desperation. The word commotion literally means a noisy uproar. That's what's going on. And as they come up to this noisy uproar, they hear that people are weeping and wailing loudly. Piercing cries were heard above the other mournings and moanings. There is sobbing, there is howling. There is loud shrills over this loss. Commentators tell us it was the custom of that day for a family to actually go out when it was time to grieve and hire professional mourners. 
And people would come in, these professional mourners, and they would join in their weeping. And the goal was to find some empty comfort in others shedding tears as they shed their own tears. And even when the folks were too weak to cry for them or in their own strength, then these professional mourners, it was their job to continue on the scene of tears. What a sad scene into which our Lord has stepped. People are completely overcome with grief. They are in disarray over their loss. There's no stiff upper lip here. There's no swallowing it hard and being the tough guy. The rug has been jerked out from underneath their life and everything came crashing down. There is no way to fake it when your daughter dies. But then notice, and when he had entered in, he said, Jesus enters the chaotic scene and he takes command Jesus will now become the director of the scene. And he says in verse 39, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, if you did not know the end of the story, to the human ear, that sounds very cruel. Everyone knows she's not faking this. Is this a joke? A cruel one? Is Jesus mocking their grief? Does Jesus have the audacity to be sarcastic at a funeral? How strange are the words of Christ to the ear of natural men. For as Jesus says this, we know what he means. What he means is there is no permanence to death. That's what he means. It is as if this child is merely taking a nap, waiting for Jesus to raise her up again. So, so supreme is the sovereignty of our Lord that even death itself is like resting on a pillow. And yet, and you would have too, they laughed at him. They laughed at our Lord. Friend, everything in this scene is completely upside down. She has died. Jesus says she's sleeping. Seems upside down. The crowds are laughing at Christ, and he is the only one who can help. This is a laughter of scorn. They're laughing at Jesus. In their view, Jesus just doesn't accept reality. They are saying the same things as what Jesus' family said in chapter 2. He has lost his marbles. That's basically what they said in colloquial English in chapter 2. He's out of his mind. That's what they're laughing about. They are so overwhelmed with grief that the thought that beauty can come from ashes is not just not on their radar, it is laughable. Friend, have you been there? I'm sure you have. You've been so crushed by the weight of a trial that the thought of ever moving on, or as they say, picking up the pieces, is just laughable to you. you. At one point, maybe just the day before, you would have carried on with your job as you had done a hundred times before. But now suddenly something came into your life, be it death or be it tragic news, and it so shakes up your world that the thought of going back to work the next day and carrying on as you had before is a laughable thought. You think, I can never, ever be the same again. That's overwhelming. 
That's how often it is when we are overdone. Sometimes the water gets so far over our heads that the idea of getting a breath again is laughable. And there are multitudinous things in life that will plunge us under the waves. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus is more than able to step into that situation because he's there even when you're overwhelmed. And Jesus is there when you're weak. Here we see Jesus' divine authority once again on full display, but there's a point here that Mark now makes that I want you to see in the person of Jesus. In the midst of this chaotic, confusing scene we read in the middle of the verse 40, he puts them all on the outside. Somehow they were in the house, and he says, get out of the house. Or, at the very least, in the room where the child was, and he says, go into the living room. But wherever he moved them, he put them out. And this is an emphatic, forceful expulsion. This is like Jesus cleansing the temple by the sheer force of his authority and conviction. That's the same idea. Jesus now puts them out. And Jesus is now dusting off a place for him to stand. And if you've been following in these chapters, this is now the first, you could say, kind of private moment he's had in a while. There have been huge crowds flooding up to him. And now he kicks the crowds out. Why does he do that? He says it took, and he took outside, and put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother who were with him, and he went into where the child was. What an interweaving in that verse of two wonderful attributes of our Lord. We see the sovereignty of our Lord on display. He steps into a situation and he kicks the intruders out. But we also see the sweetness of Jesus on display. He kicks out the chaotic intruders but he brings the father and mother who are grieving in with him. While Jairus was been on the road to go and see Jesus, by the way, this mother has no doubt been with her child. She's been there when her child breathed her last. She heard her child and the death gasp from her throat. She may have felt her child go limp. How tender is the mercy and grace of our Lord. He is the thunder of the storm, but he is the calm of the sea. And in those tender moments, Jesus took the father and the mother. And there's a lesson there that might be short, but it's worth noting. Jesus is there when you are too weak to keep walking. Jesus is there when you are completely emotionally spent. Jesus took this mother and father with them because he wanted to know he can do. He can do what they can't do. And he's going to be there when you're delivered. Because Jesus is there when you're delivered. And here we come now to the point every Sunday school child already knew. From rightful human perspective, Jesus was now stepping into an impossible situation. There in this room lay this little girl, still, motionless, lifeless, and cold. 
was a sad sight to behold. And he took her by the hand. Again, you, you have to see the compassionate grace of our Lord when he said to her, Talitha kumai. This is a most interesting phrase Jesus now employs, that the writers go ahead and give us actual words. Talitha is a feminine form, meaning little lamb. Jesus speaks to her with the term of endearment. In our culture, it would be like saying sweetheart, little angel, precious little girl. And kumai means get up, arise from death. And with this moment, Jesus is speaking to more than her body, isn't he? Jesus is summoning her spirit back from the realm, and it says immediately. My, how we've noted that Mark loves that word. Again, immediately. Without a moment's delay, it's not as though she blinked her eyes and shook off the pins and needles from her legs. Immediately, it says, she got up. She's 12. She probably sprung up. She sat up in the deathbed. She opened her eyes. She turned her head. She saw her parents. She turned her bed toward him, her, her feet toward him, and she stood up. And the text says she was 12 years old. This is, Mark is the only gospel writer that gives us her age. Mark does this, I think, to say Jesus, the tender servant king, loves this little girl. He loves her. And they were immediately in ama- overcome with amazement. Yeah, they were. In fact, literally in the Greek, it means they were astonished with great astonishment. It's actually a word play. It's on astonishment, on top of astonishment, on top of astonishment, all piled up. Before they were out of their minds with grief, you could say. Now they are out of their minds with amazement. They didn't even have a category for the word of what they were. It's like, what were they like? Describe that on paper, Mark. And Mark's like, I don't know. Astonishment on top of astonishment on top of astonishment. That, with all the exclamation points lined up next to it. One moment she was a corpse, pale and lifeless. The next moment she's walking around with health and vigor. You'd be amazed too. Does Jesus make a difference? You can't fake this. From death to life, from darkness to light, from weeping to rejoicing, from hopelessness to hallelujahs. Only believe because only Jesus could make that difference. But that's, I think, where most of us end this story. Hooray! Jesus wins! But Jesus doesn't end the story. In fact, the story doesn't end with a miracle. In fact, the story ends with a command. Do you see it there in verse 43? He charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Why does he end there? I think because what do you do next after that? I mean, what do you, like, obviously this is quite the commotion. Jairus is a known person. People know about him. They know about his family. If they didn't, they would have heard the weeping and wailing. Now what? Now what? And Jesus is there when you're wandering, 
What are you supposed to do? I want you to note the discerning order our Lord gives. He, he strictly, it says, charged them that no one should know this. Why did he make this command? Because he has come to be a savior, not a healer. Jesus will heal, and it will provide validation that he is the Son of God, and it will document that he is the Messiah. He will perform these miracles that he will have the displays of his compassion and mercy. But that is not why the Son of Man came into this world. The Son of Man came into this world to seek and to save lost people. The Son of Man has come into this world to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Do not tell anyone, he says, because it will sidetrack the mission and people will begin to come for the wrong reasons. They will desire not the healing of their soul and the forgiveness of their sin, but they will want a miracle. They will confuse the fish and the bread with the real bread of the word. They will want a political messiah. They will want him to be a physician, not a savior of their soul. No doubt the disciples would have thought, Lord, do more of that. (laughs) I mean, if you do more of that, the crowds, which are already large, will begin to swell even more. We'll have a bigger ministry. This is Jairus' daughter. We'll have a bigger base. We could actually launch from here. No one would dare touch us. The ones who were with Jesus when he rose from the dead, Jairus' daughter, nobody would dare touch us. We'll have it made in ministry. And how different is our Lord's approach? He gave them these strict orders because Jesus has come first and foremost to be the physician of your soul. How easy it is when people find themselves in desperate and difficult situations and they neglect to see that their soul, their soul is far worse than their body ever was. To heal the body without addressing the soul would be to send a healthy body to hell. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What will be important a thousand years from today? What will be most important in your life a thousand years from today? It is only that I was blind at one point, but now I see. Jesus is more than able to handle every situation. And as we close, we note the tender command at the end of this chapter. Jesus told them, give her something to eat. (laughs) Seems like an unusual way to put a period at the end of this account. Give her a snack. But Mark does this to highlight our caring and compassionate servant, Lord. He is even concerned that this little girl gets something in her belly. Jesus isn't into the big picture. Jesus is into the big picture. He is. But he's also into the little details of your life. Get her a snack. Jesus is into the transcendent, all of the magnificent, sovereign workings of our Lord. He's also into the small details. Jesus is in the macro, and he's into the micro as well. It's all under the lordship of Christ. The master is so able to take care of the big and the little. 
You know what is lacking? You know what's lacking in our lives? It's for us to be like Jairus and come fight our way through the crowd and run to the Lord. To fall down before him and beg him, please come to my house. Please save my soul. Jesus, please come to my aid. Forgive my sins. Receive me into your kingdom. And friend, if you would fight your way through the crowd and fight your way to him, he will always come to you. Whatever other needs you have, be it physical or financial, be it family, be it business, be it school, whatever it is, he stands ready to help. His grace is more than sufficient. But there is a bigger picture, friend. This is his story. And he has come to save your soul. Boy, if, if, she, if Jesus had only come to resurrect dead people, this 12-year-old could have told her own story. Think about it. She'd still be alive. But Jesus did this to point to a bigger truth that you dare not miss. If you are not God's own child today, come to Jesus. There are many things in this world we might say, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, only to know I can't. Here's one. You can't stop death. It is coming. But I know a Savior who can. I know a Jesus who is able and available and ready, ready to come into your life. Jesus is more than able to handle every situation and so sin-cursed friend. Run to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we look in the story of this little girl and we see a compassionate, loving Jesus who can. Lord, there may be some in this room who no doubt have come with their hearts burdened and gripped by pain and suffering, the news of death and defeat and struggle. Lord, that is our, the reality of our existence. But Lord, you can save. You are able to save. You want to save. Lord, there may be some in this room who have never accepted Christ as their Savior. Now all these years later, removed from this true story of this girl being raised from the dead, may you use her story to draw more to you. Prepare this in your name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, the instruments are going to begin to play. A song of invitation for you. Nothing is impossible with Lord. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, our prayerful desire for you is that you would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Would you respond even as God has spoken to you?